Welcome to the Cyber Insider, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the cyber world with exclusive interviews, insights, and expert analysis. Tune in and stay ahead of the game. Welcome to the Cyber Insider, MCSoft's podcast all about cybersecurity. Your hosts today are Brett Callow, Threat Analyst here at MCSoft, and I'm Luke Connolly, Partner Manager. We're very excited to have Dimitri Smelianiats with us today. Dimitri is Director of Product Management at Threat Intel Company Recorded Future, and prior to that was a Russia-backed hacker who was indicted and extradited to the United States for his role in a cybercrime scheme. In fact, he was manager of the largest hacking group ever prosecuted in the United States. Having been both a black hat and a white hat, he has fascinating perspectives and we're delighted that he's here to share them with us. In his spare time, he rides a dirt bike and is a big fan of soap operas from the 1980s, especially Santa Barbara. Welcome, Dimitri, and thanks for making the time to chat with us today. Hi, and thank you for inviting me. We like to start off by, you know, what, what's the story with the soap operas? Oh, so you probably think of Russians as uh, people who hang out with bears, play balalaika and drink vodka all the time. This is untrue, at least from my childhood, I was born in Moscow. It still was Soviet Union. It was just regular family. My father was a police officer. Mother was elementary school teacher. And we had not much entertainment in our lives. So every Friday, we dressed up to watch American soap operas. And that's, I feel like that's how Russians were like mentally united with the United States and their problems and what, what the United States society was living through those days. And Santa Barbara, I dreamed of going there. And by the way, my dream came true when I visited California. I was driving U.S. Coastal One and I was like, Julia, my wife was Julia. Julia, let's stop at Santa Barbara. I need to see that big house they had in intro where the CC, uh, the grandfather CC lived. And she's like, what is this? Like, you never watched it? So maybe it really was just me. But honestly, I know more families who were involved in watching American soap operas. As Luke mentioned, you used to be the manager of a hacking group. How did you get into that line of work? Well, I, I was a student, uh, Moscow State Technical University. I was my second year on the information security course. And I also was a young person who liked the party. One night we drank so much, uh, me and my friend. And because I was older than him, I took steering wheel and I damaged, I totaled his Mercedes. I destroyed that car. I had to pay. I had to pay. And the other guy was like from the internet, told me, Dmitry, don't you worry. There is a great place you can learn a lot of things from. And that was Cardin Planet Forum. So I went to Cardin Planet Forum and I studied for for a whole week. And I read all the posts of the cyber crime in 2002, 2003. So that's how I got in. And how does that, how do these hacking groups work? Are they organized like legitimate businesses or it, is it just a bunch of friends who sort of coordinate things on the quiet? It depends. And it depends on the group, of course. It depends on the crime, of course. It's great to be one man soldier. At least it will be less time you're going to do if you get caught. But uh, usually people need more services. They need connections. And uh, we've experienced some real mature groups uh, when investigated together with Brad. Conti, for example, they had office, they had marketing team, they had recruiting HR team, they had money laundry team, they had pen testers. And as a fact, they had different affiliations groups. 
And then there was managers who managed all that. So let's say, yes, some groups, they can really behave like legitimate businesses, but they completely crooks as a, their business model. How does the government view these groups? Is it a matter of turning a blind eye or are they actively encouraged sometimes? You know, I don't think they proactively trying to protect these guys. I don't think sometimes they'll even know about those guys we're talking about. But once these guys are surfaced within Russian law enforcement, of course, they're going to get contacted and they better not do any crime inside of Russia because if they do so, there'll be a reason for the prosecution. Russia will not prosecute you if you hit America. But if you accidentally used Russian infrastructure or stole some credit cards from Russia or used even used stolen credit cards in Russia, They'll have enough to prosecute you, put you for two, three years in uh, pretrial detention, and then uh, milk your tail and only God knows how. How does your background help in your current role? Uh, first of all, I joined Record the Future as expert analyst, and I was researcher. I was researching these groups, many other groups, and of course, knowing how they operate, knowing where to look for these groups really helped me. And of course, I speak Russian cyber thug language. And for you, Brett, it's almost impossible to repeat some of the uh, slang that I use in my day-to-day -day conversations with threat actors. You will not be able to convince your Russian-speaking criminal actor if you don't use this slang. These slang words are very important. And when criminals see that, they, oh, it's our boy. They lose their defense. They lose their caution. And uh, that's how I get in. I, I speak like them. I don't do stuff like them. I can't anymore. But the best thing I can do is at least talk like them and look like them. So, uh, Dimitri, you're currently heavily involved in identity intelligence. What What is that? What does it mean? Well, identity intelligence is the new product I built for Recorded Future. We address two major issues. Account takeover of employees. And those account takeover can lead straight to ransomware. And Brett knows that in the past year, at least 40% of the attacks, they started with employees' stolen credentials. So my module is trying to prevent that sharing with our customers intelligence prior the ransomware attack happened. And I want to boast, I will not name uh, the brand, but in the past month, two companies gave me feedback. Dmitry, thank you so much for alerting us on this stolen credential because as soon as we changed the password, in a couple hours after, we noticed unauthorized login attempts, and those were the bad guys who were trying to log the network. They couldn't log in no more thanks to my product and that intelligence. Another use case is consumer fraud prevention. We try to identify exposures of major banks, customers, financial customers, insurance customers, healthcare providers. I share with uh, this type of industry clients all the intelligence upfront. During the trial, they can have all the intelligence to validate, to act, and we have great feedback from our customers. What does your typical work day look like now? Well, it never starts with an interview. Usually, I start my day with sourcing. I also do collections. I'm a collection manager and uh, responsible for all dark web collections for recorded future. So if there is a new forum, I need to investigate that new source, share the intelligence with our engineers, will build scrapers and start pulling posts from underground. Then a lot of meetings with engineers because I would like to build the best product ever built on earth. So I need to be very close connected to my engineers 
So they do exactly what I want them to do. Then it's interview time, of course, like today, uh, meeting with customers is my favorite time of the day when I have scheduled live demos with customers and when I can share with them my expertise, share intelligence so they can prevent ransomware immediately during the live call. It happens. And this is my favorite part of the day. When you're doing research, what type of information do you come across that can be a particular risk to your customers? Well, those are the most risky exposures are VPN credentials, RTP credentials. So that's what threat actors are looking for. The first thing they know this URL patterns. They look for search Citrix uh, slash slash VPN slash etc. They identify this network access credentials and start from there. They try to log in. If they're in, they can do stuff. And my job is to locate these credentials first before criminals can act and alert my customers. And we talked a bit about whether you know cyber ransomware gangs are ignored or allowed by Russian authorities, but are they legitimate businesses within Russia? Do they pay corporate and individual taxes, for example? Like if you're driving around a Lamborghini, you'd think that uh, the state might want a piece of that pie. Well, right. It's very hard to stay invisible in Russia when you start making money. And that was my also problem because as soon as I gained traction, I started making millions. I was like, how can I spend this money? I bought this nice red sports car. And everyone was like, who is this guy driving across Moscow? So, of course, you need to create a business, maybe not to launder money, but at least look legitimate. And when someone comes to you asking questions like, what is this? How did you make this? You need to have an answer. I dreamed of having car wash service, just like in Breaking Bad. Remember like fourth episode or a season. Uh, some people have restaurants. Some people have, uh, they invest money in estate. Depends on your tastes. How does the money laundering side typically work? How do people convert their crypto into cash yeah back in my days there was no crypto and uh, we used the western union it was straight cash and i had runners to collect cash and it was like cash you don't need to clean cash it's already cash in case with crypto payments right now well it's not a secret there is a whole district in the center of moscow that serves money laundry for crypto guys the floors very tall building all of glass and different floors do different uh, kind of laundries you can send them coins give address and they will drive and bring you cash. No uh, questions asked, no strings attached. It will cost you like extra couple a percent, but that's how far you can go. You don't need to even get out of your apartment. Uh, they will just bring you that cash. Some ransomware actors are fairly quiet whilst others are quite noisy. They'll be present on Twitter. They'll give interviews to people like you. Does that visibility cause a problem for them or? I would expect the visibility to be a problem. Since you're on a radar, you have a, appeared on the most wanted list. Of course, your life's supposed to change, but uh, it looks like not for everyone and not right now. Uh, certainly right now during the conflict, the war in Ukraine, Russia changed the way it perceives these cyber attacks. And threat actors see, threat actors understand. We can be just on Russian side all the time and they boast about invincibility in country right now, which is wrong from the criminal side perspective, but from Russian side perspective, they are patriots who are helping Russia to win faster. And that's how you should look at them right now. They are convinced they're doing the right thing, even though it's not the right thing. 
Yeah, of course, all actors aren't necessarily based in Russia. Some are in Ukraine too. Have current events strained those relationships? Uh, definitely. I've seen like very strong teams, Russian-Ukrainian teams decouple because Russian engineers, for example, they not just pick a Russian side, which is expected, they support the war. And that's the worst situation when you in Ukraine, you're hiding from bombs and rockets and your partner just like, let's do, let's bomb. You can't work with this person no more. Of course, a lot of things decoupled and some of Ukrainian counterparties, they used their knowledge and access to hurt Russian members. Like with Conti, the guy couldn't handle it no more. He came out and like enjoyed douchebags and that's what happened. And how would you compare the hacking skills of different entities like uh, Western private sector companies like the NSO Group, which released uh, Pegasus, state-sponsored ATP, you know, other nations, and against the U.S. government, for example? How would those three sectors compare? The nation state, the uh, criminal hackers, and which one? And the U.S. government. Well, uh, let's... Or, or, or uh, sorry, and, and private sectors, not criminal hackers, but private sector Western companies like the NSO Group. So... NSO group, um, state-sponsored sponsored ATP. So, so yeah, cr uh, cyber uh, criminals that are sponsored by the state or allowed by the state, and then the U.S. government. How how would those three compare? Well, U.S. government leads the way because with all the technology, with all the ability to hunt forward, they could wreck chaos in the cyber world. They don't do it. They behave because it's 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 normal procedure not to break someone's in critical infrastructure and uh, wreck chaos in someone's countries. While criminal actors, they don't have many possibilities, but with that small amount of tools, they still can cause damage just because they can and because they are invincible right now and doesn't make major difference. Like, should I do it? No, you shouldn't. Or can I do it? Yeah, I can. I'll do it. And if we look at NSO and other uh, groups that help businesses, governments with their tooling, I mean, you can't judge the creator of AK-47 because a lot of people died from this gun. It, it's sold all over the place, all over the world, and uh, all countries using this weapon because weapon is great. So in my opinion, uh, tools should be separate from comparing these groups. Do you think it's only a matter of time before we see a massively disruptive cyber attack like Colonial Pipeline, but worse? I think the only piece that holds them right now is that actually Russia and United States are not officially in conflict, and nobody wants that conflict to start. And I hope so, at least Russian and American people will prevent us from this huge conflict. And I think it could be the true that Russian law enforcement explain to their control hackers that, guys, we can't have this colonial pipeline no more because during the conflict, it can spark unexpected consequences for both sides. So, uh, of course, uh, uh, the West can turn off Russian um, infrastructure for, through the internet. I think it's possible. They don't do it. They chose not to do it because they don't want to escalate. And I hope Russia behaves the same way. Managed service providers have been a popular target for ransomware games for quite some time. What should MSPs be doing to protect themselves and, crucially, their customers? Well, some uh, managed service providers would build software, and that software is used to actually help their customers. They need to pay attention to the code, to the length of their passwords, and maybe not involve in turns 
to look like critical parts of the coding. At the same time, I strongly suggest all MSPs to look at my product because it will allow them to look after the customers and uh, prevent uh, credential leaks, uh, prevent account takeovers of employees, and prevent ransomware. So come to Dmitry. If you could get every small business to do one thing to protect themselves, what would it be? Uh, free or paid? A free advice is immediately reset your password, clean cookies, and start your cyber hygiene afresh. Because if we all reset our passwords today, everything that these criminals collected so far will not be relevant. They will have to do it again and again and again. So my free advice is just reset the passwords. That's how you can know for sure that they haven't been stolen. And in terms of paid things I can do? Oh, of course. Uh, come to Dmitry. I'll show you identity intelligence, two-week free trial, and uh, then we'll talk money. <laughs> How can we beat ransomware? Can we beat us? I think uh, this question was on the table since 2020, or maybe even earlier. And uh, I always answer it the same way. We need cooperation between countries. And before the conflict in Ukraine, before the war started, we saw signs of such cooperation. When Mr. Biden met with Mr. Putin, they discussed it's a problem. Russian hackers is a problem. And Russian law enforcement took an action. They arrested a number of rival affiliates. They were open for working together with the West. It was negotiations. It was about like... Um, we should not invade and we will help you with this. And something didn't work out. Without such a cooperation, it's not possible. Russia will always protect its citizens. They will not investigate crimes that happened overseas. There's no venue for them even to prosecute these guys. I really hope there'll be times when Russia and the West will be friendly again and Russia will help West to beat cybercrime. And this is something that we've been asking everybody should companies be allowed to pay ransoms? Should there be a ban or restrictions on payments? It's a very hard question because back in my research days, I always considered ransomware as like act of cyber terrorism. We don't cooperate with terrorists. We're not going to pay them. But hey, it's business solution. Sometimes, yes, your security was terrible. And now all your hospital patients are endangered because the uh, hospital is locked. You need to do something very quick. Who can help you? Does your company help them? Hopefully, yes. But if not, if nobody's there to unlock the network, there could be decisions in favor of paying just to unlock and enable equipment, enable the facility to save lives. So in my opinion, if it's just a business that sells Coca-Cola, well, it's your problem. But if it's human lives, you should consider. Also, if it's oil pipeline, affects a lot of people. So it's always a business decision, maybe political decision. But I've seen examples when the whole country... Um, prohibits payments and it works in their favor. You know why? Because criminals looking for path of least resistance, if they see a small obstacle, there are so many other countries they go after for. So if one country stops it, they can switch. But in case of the United States, it's such a big pie, they will probably not just switch, they'll keep, keep working. There are some restrictions on ransom payments, such as OFAC in the US, and I think the UK has introduced some similar restrictions recently. Are they a useful tool? Can they actually help? Well, okay, they marked some wallets. They marked some ransomware brands. What stops Wazavaka, for example, to create a new nickname, a new wallet, and a new ransomware stream, but keep his experience 
tools, connections, everything, just your names. And he will pass the sanctions uh, because he's never been sanctioned yet as a new identity. So I feel like it's a good way to stop larger brands from operating, from being too successful. Like Conti, we should have sanctioned them years ago, not letting them grow that big. But smaller groups will still be hacking and extorting. It's very hard to sanction everyone. Is it actually better to have the bigger groups like or to have them splinter into smaller, constantly changing bodies? That's a great question. And I think a couple of years ago, I, I said, on a, um, uh, during interview, I said that there'll be times in the future when we will hope that it was just Russians and just a couple of groups. Because when the book leaked, everyone trying, all kind of uh, actors all over the world download this bad executed malware but designed malware that they reuse and there is no chance for a victim to decrypt it. So I would rather have one big brand I could deal with. And it's easy to scrape this because as a um, collection manager, I uh, we scrape a lot of ransomware blogs to alert our customers on third-party exposures, on their brand exposures and stuff. And they always come with some new captures. They always come with new file structure. And I have to rework the whole engineering effort to, to get this data. So I'd rather have just one a professional team, uh, but it's not happening. It's out there and uh, everybody sees how profitable it is. And I, we see people, we see hackers from Latin America, Asia, Middle East, uh, and so on. It's no more, uh, not just Russia anymore. It's everyone. What would your prediction be for the cyber landscape for the next 12 months? It's really hard when the hot conflict is uh, unfolding. And I mean, Ukraine, it's really hard to imagine what will happen to cyber. Because if there is a big war, a West against Russia, there'll be all tools used. And then we'll see different cyber. Maybe we will not even see it. Maybe we'll not have electricity and we'll just sit in dark. So, But if there is no escalation in hot war the ransomware will keep evolving we'll see them locking networks there is no current solution against ransomware it's our, our cyber hygiene it's professional tools it's listening to advisory of CISA advisory for example FBI advisory and following these steps I don't expect any new criminal workflow appearing so far because uh, the, the ransomware still works and they will milk it until the very end. Parting, as you saw, it was a business for 20-something years. Slowly goes down. Uh, ransomware is still, I think it's still growing. And with that, I'd like to thank you, Dimitri, for joining us today. It's been a very interesting conversation. And we'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in. Stay up to date on the latest in cybersecurity by subscribing to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Brad, for inviting me.